where we explore the frontier of internet money and internet finance. This is how to get started, how to get better, and how to front run the opportunity. This is Ryan Sean Adams. I'm here with David Hoffman, and we're here to help you become more bankless. David, we've been waiting a long time for this episode. It seems like, well, 20 episodes, I suppose we've been waiting because this is episode 21. We have Vitalik Buterin on the show. What did you think about this? So banklessness is a journey, right? So it's a, it's a journey that we're all going on together. And I, I feel like the last 20 episodes were really our, our collective prep work for what we wanted to ask Vitalik. Uh, and so we kind of bucketed this conversation into a couple different camps. We talked about Ethereum, past, present, future, Ether, the assets. And then, and then we had a pretty fun uh, roll-ups round at the very end. But really what collectively we were trying to get at Uh, And we asked him directly this question, which I enjoyed his answer, um, and I'll I'll leave that teaser there. But really what we're trying to get at is like, what are these systems uh, collectively? Like what, when we have like the bankless nation and we have the Ethereum blockchain and we have DeFi and then we have the community, uh, we we, we ask questions around all these different topics. And so it's really a, a conversation that hits the different points of what these systems are from different angles. And so that's what I really enjoyed about this conversation with Vitalik. You know, he asked a question at the very beginning, and we didn't get a chance to uh, answer his question in the podcast, but I, I'd love your answer now, David. So his question was, would Ethereum be okay now if I left? It wasn't the case probably you know four years ago, but would it be okay now if I left, I being Vitalik? What's your take on that? Yeah, so Ethereum's still in like beta, right? That I think that's the right way to view Ethereum 1.x, even though we are doing just a massive amount of economic activity and people's lives are being changed uh, with Ethereum 1. We're still in beta. And, you know, I, people criticize me whenever I say this on like POV CryptoPod or, or elsewhere, but like, I trust Vitalik. Like, I trust him. He seems like a trustworthy guy. And so while these systems are supposed to be leaderless, in this current Ethereum 1X uh, version, the, the beta version of Ethereum, where we have this guy who is is obviously intelligent and obviously has the best interest of Ethereum at heart and is pragmatic in the way that it is both good and bad for the world, I'm glad that Vitalik is here. And so while if, if Vitalik left now, I think Ethereum would carry itself into the future perpetually, it would be slower. And, it, and having that leader that where we can rally behind, uh, I, I think is still valuable in the present version of Ethereum. Now, I also hope that changes. Uh, and, and, I, and I think Vitalik uh, hopes that it has already changed, but I hope it changes and com- kind of completely finalizes a, a, an independence from any one uh, single person when Ethereum 2.0 is rolled around and, and completely matured. You know what it reminds me of is maybe this is because I just watched Hamilton, but it reminds me of like George Washington, right? Kind of the the general that led the early republic in the beginning, uh, and took a first term as president, but then uh, stepped away. And some people wanted to make him a king, but he stepped away and let the republic govern himself. I think that's what Vitalik is doing in a way is he's he's gradually been sort of stepping aside. And letting other leaders, letting the community kind of fill the gaps of his leadership. And that's been on a steady trend since, you know, 2015. Eventually, I think he'll just step away from this entire thing. Um, 
like you, I think he's he's sort of a George Washington character in that he's not here to set himself up as king of anything. Uh, he wants to see the success of the Ethereum nation uh, and the Republic, uh, essentially. Um, and, you know, I think it would be in a much better place if he stepped away now than it would have been previously. Mm-hmm. But it's his leadership is, is still uh, super useful now as George Washington's was in, in the early days of the United States of America. Yeah, and he also has other interests too, right? Like he doesn't only work on Ethereum. And I think there's there's been a more and more emphasis that Vitalik has started to to expand his interest into other realms. We didn't really get into that that on this episode, but if you follow Vitalik, he's an avid member of the radical markets movement. Uh, and there is obvious intersection there between Ethereum and the radical markets community, but it's also separate. Uh, and so I, I think when Ethereum 2.0 rolls around, like he'll still be present, but I, I think he would largely, his interests have largely would have moved on to perhaps building something on top of Ethereum, but not Ethereum itself. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this was a key time to get Vitalik on the Bankless podcast too, because it's going to be Ethereum's fifth birthday on July 30th. So this is five years. So you talked about Ethereum being in beta you know, in human years, Ethereum is just a toddler. Like it's just learned to walk and now it's getting ready for some preschool. Uh, But it doesn't know a lot and it certainly hasn't grown into what it is going to be as uh, an adult. So, you know, I think you'll find in this conversation that Vitalik realizes that and a lot of his conversations were about, a lot of the conversation was about how Ethereum grew up, what its values are, what the future looks like. It's really a a fantastic mind that we're speaking to, and it was a fantastic conversation. So we hope you enjoy it. Now, before we begin, we want to talk about our sponsors. As we all go westward, we need to get our values into the crypto world, but hopefully escape the tyranny of centralized rent-seeking institutions. And that's where Monolith can help you get your value into the crypto world while skipping over the crypto banks. Monolith coming soon to Monolith is an on-ramp directly from your old world bank account into your smart contract wallet on Ethereum. And for those that don't know, Monolith also has a DeFi card, which uses DAI in your smart contract wallet, but on the Visa network. So you can go to your grocery store, swipe your DeFi card, pay for your groceries like a normal person, and still be part of the crypto bankless, crypto economic future that we are all excited about. So you can get your value from your bank account directly into your crypto visa card without having to go through any crypto bank intermediary, which is just absolutely fantastic. So in order to get started, go to monolith.xyz and get your bankless visa card today. So the biggest thing that's holding crypto back is actually getting fiat into the system, moving from that old world to the new crypto world. What you have to do is create an account with an exchange. You have to wire funds. That's also holding your app back if you are a DeFi developer and are building something on a network like Ethereum. What that means is in the fiat process, your users drop off when they're signing up and you're limiting your market to the hardcore crypto people. But what if you could make it super easy to on-ramp to your application using a fiat on-ramp? Ramp is that. It is a delightfully easy fiat on-ramp. It lets first-time crypto users get ETH and DAI, USDC, whatever asset they want in five minutes or less. So this reduces the dropout rate and lets you build products 
for the real world. Zerion is using it. Ethereum is using it. Taurus is using it. DeFi apps that you probably know and use today are using it. What you need to do is check this out and visit ramp.network to see how easy it is. You can get set up in 10 minutes or less and 100x your addressable market size as a developer. This is like the ultimate growth hack. And when you mention Bankless, they'll on-ramp the first 100K in US dollars for free. So go to ramp.network, mention Bankless, and get started. All right, let's go ahead and get right into the episode with Vitalik Buterin. We are incredibly excited to have our next guest who needs no introduction. Uh, We've got Vitalik on the Bankless podcast today. Vitalik, it's almost Ethereum's fifth birthday. How are you feeling about things? How are you feeling about Ethereum? I feel like it's come really far. I I feel like uh, the Ethereum of uh, 2020 is much more mature and uh, kind of much bigger and very different um, in just so many ways from Ethereum as it was even two years from now, let alone what it was uh, back in uh, 2015 when the project first launched. Like uh, what Ethereum was just uh, first starting and the project is uh, maybe less than one year old and you know, there was the Ethereum core team, there were the Ethereum developers. Um, Ethereum research was largely myself, uh, Vlad, and uh, kind of Gav Wood. Uh, and uh, there were things happening, but and there were fewer things happening. And, and you could tell there were fewer things happening uh, just by looking at the kinds of things that we would get excited about. Like uh, just Microsoft announcing that they were doing things uh, relating to the Ethereum ecosystem was just so amazing to hear for the first time. And now that's the sort of thing that we just hear every single month. Um, from the technology point of view, I think uh, just a huge number of things have come uh, so far. Uh, so like, for example, on the research side, um, you know, maybe five years ago, uh, research felt like a, a very open field in a lot of ways where we just didn't really know where a lot of the paths that we were taking would lead and what other paths exist. But uh in 2020, like it's definitely not close to complete, but it feels like a lot of the territory has been explored, and it feels like we kind of have the map roughly laid down. Um, so, one example of this is in proof of stake. For example, like we figured out how to uh, combine together the benefits of uh, chain-based uh, proof of stake with uh, and more traditional proof of stake based on PBFT-like algorithms with the two-thirds thresholds. Uh, we figured out how uh, how to do a CPC Casper. We've uh, figured out a lot of the economics around like things like uh, weak subjectivity, things like how to optimize uh, a lot of the economic incentives, um, results in terms of what we can and what we can't do. On the layer two side, uh, we kind of understand how state channels work. We understand how plasma works, and we understand how rollups work, and we kind of have an understanding that those are basically the only three categories that can exist, um, which is uh, kind of amazing. Um, and we have an understanding of you know what are the precise properties of each category, what are the limits of each category. Um, on the development side, and you know, ETH 2.0 is no longer just a kind of thoughts that keep on getting re- uh, 
renewed every three months. It's uh, code that's been implemented and that has an active test net, at least for the proof of stake side that I actually think is the bulk of the complexity. Um, on the layer two side, you know, it's not just ideas. We actually have Loopring and we actually have ZK Sync and we have uh, OMG Plasma um, that's, I think, on a test net and going to go live very soon. Could be could be wrong, I forget the details, but definitely kind of uh, done did an excellent job of rising from the grave after it seems like a lot of people kind of forgot about it for some time. Um, there's, uh, on the optimistic roll-up side, things coming out soon. Privacy is much better. ZK Snark Research has just come forward leaps and bounds. Um, and the Ethereum community has done, I think, a great job of uh, kind of cooperating with the and zero knowledge proof and academic cryptography space on that regard. And you know now we have uh, the pre-compiles uh, that we've had since Byzantium. Would, for the last couple of years, we have actual running privacy preserving applications like Tornado Cache, for example, and things like Aztec. Um, just uh, the theory around how to make uh, th Snarks and Starks uh, ha just made a huge kind of hockey stick like leap forward uh, some, somewhere in the fall of last year when things like Planck and polynomial commitment uh, kind of base systems started to come out. So feels like technologically it's been making huge progress on every point. Uh, in terms of the community, and I feel like uh, Ethereum is far more kind of independent of uh, myself, uh, for example, than it was five years ago. Like, I mean, I'd be interested to hear kind of your opinion of like, you know, how much would Ethereum have suffered had I disappeared five years ago versus like if I were to disappear today um, or even two years ago. Um, also, the Ethereum ecosystem has uh, gotten much more independent of even the Ethereum Foundation. Uh, so now we have a lot of these other kind of very established companies uh, that are building clients, building applications, uh, just building and doing a lot of things. Uh, there's a lot more kind of independent voices in the uh, community and even like projects like ETHUB are one good example of this. So lots of progress on all fronts. Like I, I feel no longer worried that Ethereum is no longer going to be around a year from now, you know? You also, Vitalik, sound uh, pretty bullish, pretty optimistic about things in your answer. Uh, and has that always been the case? Have you always been just as optimistic as you are right now? I feel like uh, there's definitely been times historically when I was m uh, much more worried. Um, I was much more worried in um, definitely the first half of 2014 when it was not even clear when the sale would happen. I was much more worried um, pretty much uh, through the first half of 2015 when the uh, test nets were taking a really long time and... Uh, you know, I was, uh, I remember through April, May, and the first part of June, I was kind of sitting in China and visiting the Chinese community for a quite uh, quite some time. And people were just wondering, you know, hey, okay, Ethereum's cool, but when's the thing actually going to be released? When's the thing actually going to be released? And then, of course, it got released. Um, but then through the second half of 2015, I was uh, really worried uh, because uh, I was uh, just concerned the Ethereum Foundation would, would run out of money before it would be able to actually finish anything uh, interesting. Uh, throughout 2016, um, the DAO fork uh, definitely scared me a lot. Uh, uh, 
so end of 2016, the DOS wars um, scared me a lot. Uh, I mean, the price uh, kind of dropping down to uh, like six or seven dollars briefly uh, scared me to some extent as well. And there was definitely a time there when it felt like Ethereum, you know, might just get forgotten. Um, so I've definitely felt scared a lot, but I feel considerably more confident than I did at pretty much any point in uh, Ethereum's history. So Vitalik, that was an insanely holistic sit rep of the Ethereum ecosystem uh, now. And we kind of want to go in this past, present, future path in in this podcast. So starting with, uh, you know, the past back to 2014, 2015, how has the current state of Ethereum lined up with what you uh, could imagine it to be back then? Like when you were writing the white paper before the Genesis block was mined, what did you think Ethereum would produce for the world and, and how much or how little has that lined up with reality? Well, it depends on when, right? Because uh, at the beginning of 2014, end of 2013, the vision for Ethereum was definitely kind of very broad and there w- wasn't like a very specific set of things that I definitely wanted to have happen and it was jumping around a lot and you know at the end of 2013 I was talking about DAOs and I wrote that three-part series about DAOs in the Bitcoin magazine then the idea for Ethereum itself uh, kind of originally evolved from basically a set of patches to Mastercoin which was uh, a protocol for the thing that uh, in 2020 the cool kids called DeFi Um, so uh, It was, uh, the focuses definitely ended up changing. And there was also some time when I was really excited about like decentralized Dropbox type protocols. Um, And then, you know, naming systems, stable coins. And so the visions definitely kind of jumped around a lot, but it feels like most or all of the things that I was excited about uh, happening on Ethereum six or seven years ago actually ended up happening or at least being tried to some extent. So Vitalik, there's this meme about um, Ethereum being kind of a world computer and um, critics of Ethereum will say, look, it's not a world computer. It doesn't do storage. It doesn't, you know, it's not fast enough to be a world computer. Uh, Can can you talk about the world computer narrative? Like, uh, was that the right narrative for Ethereum? You know, or like, what's your take on that? So I think uh, a lot of people misinterpreted uh, what uh, the phrase world computer was supposed to mean. Like the intended meaning was not a computer powerful enough for the world's needs. Uh, The meaning was uh, a computer that uh, the entire world has immediate access to. Um, And the intention was that, uh, you know, for applications where the entire world needs to see the process and see the outcome, you would do it on the world computer, but there would be lots of things that uh, do not have that requirement. And so you would uh, do them on uh, all of the other computers that exist today. Now, obviously, a lot of people didn't interpret it that way. And uh, I think it's very reasonable to argue that uh, if you create a meme and that meme gets uh, misinterpreted to hell by everyone, then that meme was a bad meme. So that's totally fair criticism. Do you think there's something? Do you think there's something to the meme of Ethereum being a world settlement computer, at least, or some kind of a, you know, world coordination system? A, you know, a, a public good for property rights? Maybe. Uh, so, one of my uh, kind of causes uh, for 
a bit of a hesitation around uh, some of those uh, kind of finance-oriented terms, whether it's like settlement or even property rights, is that there's a lot of uh, non-financial use cases of the Ethereum blockchain. Um, so and even ENS, for example, and you could argue that you know the transfer of an ENS name is technically a kind of settlement, but generally people in the domain name space don't really use that term like that term is more specifically a finance thing uh, and there's applications around you know account management and like a reputation and like certificate registries and all of those things that don't even have to, to do with property rights at all and i want to kind of preserve uh, you know the idea that ethereum is a platform for all of those things too so I feel like kind of designing the narrative of like what Ethereum fundamentally is as being like entirely around finance uh, could kind of risks marginalizing those other use cases. And World Computer, and one of the reasons why a lot of us liked it is definitely that it's kind of much more accommodating of those things. But then I guess you could argue that uh, it kind of runs into the opposite flaw, which is that it underemphasizes the financial use cases, and it's not clear how you know a computer is uh, relevant to kind of creating the next world economy. So I don't know. I, I think uh, you know Ethereum's narrative is ultimately pluralist, and there's no single slogan that does an excellent job of capturing what it's about. So I would like to make the argument that while there are plenty of non-financial use cases of Ethereum, those non-financial use cases still are like financial adjacent, right? So like ENS, the, the, the name namespace system on Ethereum really is just allowing or could just be viewed as a system that allows for finance to just go better, right? Like send me die to davidhoffman.eth, right? That's just way easier. And any Ethereum that uses system as like a land registry is still using Ethereum as like a value settlement systems, right? And so I, I would still pre present the argument that at the L1 chain is still going to be like the financial layer and perhaps the, the, the less dense, the less uh, weighty economic transactions are, are kind of pushed off to, to the L2. Uh, does that resonate with you or do you see it differently? Hmm. I guess uh, there's definitely a lot of use cases that are financial adjacent. And then I would say there's legitimate use cases that are kind of far enough from finance that it's more reasonable to call them not finance than it is to uh, call them finance. Um, I mean, even just one example of this that I sometimes talk about is like, I talk about a lot about like accounts with social recovery, for example, right? And how I think that a lot more people should be using like smart contract wallets with social recovery as a way of uh, storing their crypto. And I actually think that this is a use case that could apply not just to holding cryptocurrency, but also potentially even as your kind of primary identity that you use to sign into websites, right? Like I want people to have smart contract wallets that they use to log into like even the centralized web platforms that are going to continue to exist. And I, I've been kind of increasingly bullish on this use case recently, just because I've kind of learned more and more that the existing centralized and of access control and access recovery mechanisms are actually surprisingly terrible. Like, you know, you think that, oh, there's a company in charge. And so there's people that can help you kind of solve your problems if anything bad ends up happening. But I just know so many people that have problems with, you know, Google accounts or Twitter accounts or whatever else. And 
the process of getting those accounts back is just a nightmare and sometimes they end up not succeeding at all and so if instead of having a single company control your identity then you know your identity would be a smart contract and that smart contract would have rules that say you know here are the five uh, people that can uh, kind of recover your account and then you use whatever cryptographic key that, that is stored in the smart contract to sign into things that you have the ability to change your cryptographic key inside the smart contract um, so that's a kind of use case which seems pretty far from finance if you think about it that way um, now I definitely do think that especially now those use cases are in the minority um, and in the short term future those use cases are going to continue being in the minority be, uh, and a big part of that is uh, basically just uh, because uh, the uh, transaction fees are high and when transaction fees are high finance is the only thing that's still willing to pay them but in the long run you know, especially uh, after we have things like rollups or sharding that it, or rollups and sharding, even that equation could change. So we'll see. On the topic of identity, do you think Ethereum will make progress on that or crypto writ large on getting good, even decentralized identity into these crypto systems? So what people call identity, I tend to try to split up into three separate problems, right? So the first problem is account access control so basically if i right now declare that you know i am vitalik um and i create some uh, kind of ethereum account or name or whatever that represents uh, this identity um then i just want to have the ability that i in the future will continue to be identified by ethereum uh whatever systems i interact with as being vitalik Right. And if I choose to call myself Fred, then I'll keep my, my, uh, being identified as Fred. If I uh, identify as a uh, three-legged toad, then, you know, the system would still uh, kind of continue to say that I'm a three-legged toad. Right. So the point is not about uh, kind of who you are in some real world sense. It's about kind of persistence of, ide of uh, identity, basically that the the actor that performed one action is the same as the actor that performed these other actions. And that's basically the uh, something I'm very bullish about smart contract while it's really improving on. The second identity problem is uh, what I call the unique human problem, right? So basically just proving that some particular account represents a unique human. So it represents a human and not a robot, and one human can get only one of them. Um, or at least it's hard for a human to get a lot of these identities. And this uh, sort of thing is really important in applications like Gitcoin uh, quadratic voting, for example. It's important in uh, basically any voting system. It could also be useful as a form of uh, kind of anti-civil and spam prevention. Um, and there's a bunch of projects that are doing this. And I think Bright ID is interesting, for example. And, and then I know there's also all the centralized alternatives. So it feels like a Gitcoin is turning into a yeah, platform that it will just be forced to experiment with a lot of these things which is really interesting and then the third aspect of identity is basically proving or attesting to claims about other identities and them being able to prove that some attestation has been made right so i want to prove that i am recognized by the government of canada as being a citizen i want to prove that according to this entity i uh, have some particular age or that according to this um, um, university, I graduated from them and uh, things like that, right? And those use cases are 
inherently centralized to some extent, so there's a limit to how much you can decentralize them, but you definitely can use blockchains as a kind of base layer for basically kind of managing these identities and figuring out what all the different cryptographic keys are and creating infrastructure to do things like zero-knowledge attestations, uh, for example. Uh, so I think there's definitely room for blockchains to help in a lot of those areas too, but it'll take time. So when the, hopefully the Ethereum blockchain, but some blockchain solves this, the problem of identity, right? And we start to have like a social recovery system or simply contracts that represent people. It really, that just seems like the, the basal layer, right? Like the, the very first building block for what hopefully becomes a larger social graph, right? So you know, the way the way society works, the way we work as members of a community is that we have like we are nodes and then we have our connections to our family members, our friends, our business partners, like people that we trust. And then that as a web spans out and, and ultimately reaches the whole world. Right. Except it's not really defined. It's very loosely defined. It's it's, it's not really uh, instantiated anywhere. And so, it's, uh, what I'm, uh, what I'm, I think you are trying to to illustrate is that perhaps one day, this the actual relationships of people is somewhat like codified or or instantiated in the Ethereum blockchain. And me and me and Ryan here, we we talk a lot about like the bankless nation, like they, an online digital uh, nation, digital civilization that is independent from any nation state. And it seems like solving the identity on on a blockchain system will allow us to have these social representations inside of this digital nation, this one single global um, platform. Uh, it, it, is that is that is that kind of where we are going with this whole identity thing on Ethereum? That's definitely kind of one of the worlds I'm looking forward to trying to see if we can create. And then how much how much progress do we need to make to get there? How far off is this problem? I mean, quite a bit. I, I think uh, it is something that has to be kind of approached incrementally. And the challenge is that it has to be approached kind of incrementally in this way where every individual step that we take is in itself useful so that people are willing to take the step. Like... People aren't going to be willing to, you know, just sign up for IDs because they're excited about getting IDs and people aren't going to be willing to, you know, provide information about some social graph because they're excited about webs of trust. Like, you'll get a few people, but you're not going to get enough of a network effect. Whereas if you're tying the whole thing into even just something like Gitcoin grants being one example or into some other system where you can get concrete benefits for uh, participating then you know that could be actually be used to bootstrap the ecosystem and once the ecosystem has been bootstrapped you can try to kind of take it further and try doing other things with it so vitalik we we talked about the past and that sort of bled into an interesting conversation about uh identity um i want to talk about the the present of ethereum right now so five years old it's 2020 um one of the big use cases, of course, is this DeFi thing that's always been present uh, since kind of the, the beginning of the white paper. There were DeFi type use cases that we didn't call it DeFi back then. Now we have a meme. What's your take on DeFi? Do you like it? Do you hate it? Um, some of both. And I think uh, there's definitely a lot of uh, DeFi applications that are just really valuable and essential. Like I would consider stable coins and especially in crypto economic stable coins so things like Dai and now there's Rai and some other ones coming up um, as being like 
DeFi and uh, being really valuable. Um, I would say decentralized exchanges, Uniswap uh, has also been extremely valuable. Um, and I hope that we can see synthetic assets representing things other than dollars, um, you know, major stock indices, a couple of other fiat currencies uh, would be really nice to have. Prediction markets are technically defined and it would be really nice to see prediction markets uh, get more widely used. And there's definitely also a side to DeFi that uh, feels like it sometimes uh, kind of gets into more speculation than than value and more kind of short-term than long-term. Uh, so like, for example, the recent uh, kind of yield farming craze, right, where, as I understand, uh, the yields uh, reached uh, uh, over 100% uh, uh, annualized uh, for for some amount of time. Like what what happens there is basically that uh, Compound created a promotion where they would basically just gift to Compound tokens to people who would uh, kind of put their liquidity into the platform, and the result of this is basically that people kind of ran uh, and and uh, threw their token all of their assets into the platform and started uh, kind of collecting these fairly high interest rates. But the reality is that those interest rates are not reflective of anything that's remotely sustainable, right? It's just a temporary promotion that was created by printing a bunch of compound tokens, and they can't just keep printing compound tokens forever. Uh, So if, uh, like, in the long term, I definitely don't think that DeFi is going to give, like, flashy double-digit interest rates of any kind, right? In the long run, I expect DeFi interest rates to converge to being something... uh, much closer to just uh, being the traditional financial system. So I I do think there is kind of an element of uh, trying to kind of rush for these things that seem like they're uh, very lucrative, but actually they're just short-term opportunities and they're not actually going to scale into something that's uh, really meaningful for tens of uh, millions of people. Uh, But, you know, I guess... People want to do weird things with money, and so that side of the space is just going to keep existing. Uh, but, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so the the common thread it sounds like in the things about DeFi that you like are they're more crypto economic and they're more long term oriented and building and less sort of uh, speculative, less mania oriented. Let's call it. Now, th- there is a argument about the liquidity mining side of things and the yield farming side of things, that though there is a a speculation aspect to it, of course, um, and it could easily and maybe already has already turned into some kind of a a mania, it's different than the ICO mania. Because in the ICO mania, what we had were tokens that were really sort of, you know, they called them futility tokens, right? They didn't have a value accrual mechanism. But it could be argued that some of these tokens like uh, Comp, uh, like like Balancer, are going to add value accrual mechanisms in the same way that Maker has a value accrual mechanism. Do you think that's healthy, that the assets at least are healthier from a value accrual perspective? I love how you uh, refer to utility tokens as if utility tokens, by the way. That's great. <laughs> um, <laughs> and the economic model is definitely like... It's unsustainable, but it has less downside risk from an economic point of view. I think the main downside risk I'm concerned about with DeFi is uh, smart contract risk. So either smart contract bug risk or oracle risk of some uh, type. Um, Basically, you know, if you have like 
600 billion dollars or whatever it is inside of these systems before they've been really well audited and they're ready to accept those values and uh, either it turns out there is a bug in the contract or it turns out that uh, you know the oracle gets attacked somehow then that could be a really big problem for people and i do think that people should uh, kind of keep uh, some of these risks in mind right like i i remember people saying things like, oh, you know, if you have your dollars in a bank account, you get 2%. And if you have your dollars in DAI, you get 4%. Look, it's double the interest rates and it's amazing. But the reality is that that extra, uh, you know, that 4% is only a good deal if you assume that the risk of MakerDAO as a system breaking is less than 2% a year, right? And if you're a risk neutral, I mean, if you're risk averse, then uh, you would want to be even more cons- even more conservative. You'd want the risk to maybe be less than 1% a year or less than half a percent a year or something like that. So the, the question is, you know, do you actually think that the risk of MakerDAO breaking um, over the course of the next 12 months is less than 2%? I mean, MakerDAO's done an excellent job of uh, surviving these uh, last two and a half years with... Uh, basically no losses to die holders right it's uh, survived a 93 percent loss in in the price of eth it even survived a uh, i think it was 55 or 60 percent loss of the in the price of eth over the course of a single day which is uh, just really amazing so it's definitely shown some sturdiness but has it shown an expected lifetime of more than 50 years um so it's less clear uh so i i, I definitely think that that's something that people kind of should be careful about and people should just remember that uh, you know these kind of background risks of systems just breaking for weird unknown reasons is something that does continue to exist you know even though yes maker and these other projects have done a lot of work informally verifying their stuff and they've done vastly more due diligence than uh, the dow did in uh, 2016 but you know even still like claiming that a system is uh, expected to break less than once in half a century after that system has only been in operation for two and a half years is something that requires a lot of confidence and it's not clear that we can justify that high level of confidence yet so i guess i uh, continue advising caution in that regard so so vitalik you, you talked about how the the very strong apr of compound with this liquidity mining thing like worried you right and it, perhaps it illustrated some sort of mania going on, especially as the comp token rose to where it, or where it is now, which is almost a two billion dollar dollar market cap, you know, right out of the gate. However, I would like to uh, pitch an equal and opposite view, where this excitement over the comp token is a great tool for decentralizing the the compound system, right? So the comp token is now the thing that represents ownership over the compound protocol. And this excitement about comp and the liquidity mining around comp is all about people uh, like this nebulous uh, set of stakeholders who are adding liquidity to compound. They just really, really want to get the comp token, which is why the comp token price is so high because of all the excitement that the comp token has generated because people are really excited to get their hands on the governance token, which is the way that the compound protocol moves from a protocol controlled and operated by compound labs to controlled and operated by this nebulous set of people that own the comp token. 
Um, and so is, is that a fair take to have about like the, the mania, the, the goodness of the mania surrounding the liquidity mining, mining and then the comp token? Yeah, no, liquidity mining is definitely just economically a really interesting uh, concept. So like in general, one question to ask is like, if someone is being paid in one token and they want to have another token, right? Then a spherical Cal economic model generally says, well, they'll just sell that token and they'll buy the other token, right? A spherical Cal economic model would say, it doesn't matter in which currency you pay someone for a service because they will just immediately go ahead and uh, trade that into like having the portfolio allocation that they wanted to have anyway, which is completely independent of your choice of like what thing you want you wants to give them. Um, and and even if you lock the tokens, then you know they could still just like cancel that out uh, by buying a like shorting it in some other uh, finance fin like DeFi financial derivatives platform. And in reality, of course, that often doesn't end up happening, right? And defaults often end up being sticky. Um, and it turns out that if you just like throw a token into people's hands, then people often do actually end up keeping it. Um, and if you just uh, throw a token into people's hands as a byproduct, then you do end up uh, kind of putting it into more people's hands uh, than you would if... Uh, uh, people had to actually proactively go on Uniswap and uh, kind of buy that token themselves. So just as a kind of default-based system, it's uh, kind of really interesting. And I do think that there's a limit to kind of how much liquidity mining is sustainable. Like I think uh, that if your liquidity mining system is one that basically makes the, the kind of de facto fee of using the system negative, uh, so it gives you more than you're paying in fees, then that easily turns into something that gets exploitable. Like basically the equilibrium there is just you would have people that have lots and lots of money just put all of their money into your system uh, and then they collect the, the rewards um, and they just immediately sell all, all of those tokens because they don't actually care about the application. They're just a kind of amoral, um, you know, money-making uh, uh, yield farmer uh, and, and so you don't actually kind of get the community uh, kind of and the default benefits beyond a certain point. But I think that you know, if you create a more modest version and you say, you know, yes, this DeFi protocol has a fee of 0.3%, but you get the, you know, 0.2% or even the entire 0.3% back, but just denominated in this protocol token. And yes, if you want, you can go sell it on Uniswap, but, you know, by default, you're just going to keep it and you're just going to slowly turn into a kind of citizen of the protocol, then, you know, that's actually a, a really interesting uh, com uh, community dynamic. And also, I definitely kind of feel like uh, you have to have some sympathy for protocol creators because like, protocol creators want, I think, to have decentralized token distributions and making a decentralized token distribution is hard. Like before you had sales and now it's illegally risky to have a sale unless you have the sale in a way that's uh, fairly centralized. And before you had airdrops, but but airdrops uh, and they're giving a lot of uh, kind of money away for free, and uh, it's not uh, necessarily clear how effective they are. I do think they can be very effective in some cases, but they do have to be designed fairly well. Uh, so, and then there's obviously distributing coins, uh, kind of per person, but that just gets back to the whole discussion about identity systems. You know, I don't know. I think uh, like. 
I, there's a lot of uh, kind of challenges that people that are trying to make these new projects face. And so I do think that we have to kind of have a bit of mercy toward them and a bit of forgiveness toward models that aren't perfectly optimal. Uh, but, and so I guess liquidity mining is definitely interesting, but it's also not the end. And I uh, kind of look forward to seeing what other things people come up with. Yeah, well said. And intent certainly does matter. I think there have been times when um, scammers with ill intent just use these sorts of things to scam people. Uh, and, um, you know, it remains to be seen, I guess, what the the intent is of these DeFi protocols. But um, I, I think it's promising. But one, one thing you mentioned earlier, Vitalik, was uh, advising caution, both about smart contract risk and interest rates and kind of the speculative mania that's that's growing about these tokens. Um, you advised caution in 2017 too. Uh, I'm not sure people listened to you, <laughs> um, or maybe some people did. But I, I guess my question is: like humans are bad with risk, and they're going to speculate no matter what. There's always going to be uh, another speculation. David and I tend to think that we are on the edge, perhaps uh, the very beginnings of another speculative bubble. That might be coming down the pike, you know, maybe maybe soon, maybe the next, uh, you know, months or a year or so. Is there an upside to all of this speculation? No, there's definitely an upside to speculation. Like I think uh, the usual line is that bubbles tends to be bad for the participants, but they are or tech bubbles uh, tend to be bad for the participants, but they're good for a society because well, they basically fund public goods, right? So. The, you know, with public goods, the line is that kind of rational, self-interested agents uh, end up under-investing in public goods because they only uh, get part of uh, the, a small part of the benefit from their contributions. But if you take crazy agents uh, who overrate the effect of uh, the, uh, of things that they're participating in, that that uh, kind of ironically ends up canceling out for the other economic bias. And so you get something that's uh, kind of strangely enough closer to being socially optimal. So... That's an interesting argument. I mean, I do think that's one of those kind of dangerous arguments because if that's something that you tell yourself to make yourself feel better, then you could end up creating, uh, creating or contributing to uh, kind of bubbles that end up really hurting a lot of people and just making some insiders rich in the process. And you kind of still think that you're being virtuous all the way through because, like, hey, it's somehow funding a bit of protocol development in the back end. Uh, so, like. You definitely have to be, you know, careful about the moral justifications that you tell yourself in that regard. But and, uh, there's definitely a kind of real positive benefit, right? Like uh, you can't deny the fact that just the crypto mania up until now has uh, funded important things like uh, if the ETH2 client development, zero knowledge proof research, uh, Ethereum 1 and kind of 1.x client development and all of these other things that the... Uh, Ethereum Foundation and a, a lot of other groups in the crypto ecosystem have ended up uh, kind of spending their money on. Um, also, a lot of uh, kind of non-crypto charities that ended up benefiting from uh, donations uh, f- uh, from uh, just people who got uh, kind of crypto rich in 2017. Like, and I made it. I made a few myself, but then there was pine- the pineapple funds that uh, threw around to kind of even more, uh, even more money, and that's uh, probably something that that's led to a lot of good. So. Like you definitely can't deny that those positive uh, consequences have happened, but yeah, at the same time, like you you have to be careful and uh, kind of avoid that uh, 
turning into a, a, this kind of self-justification story that you keep uh, telling yourself uh, and you keep on telling yourself more and more until uh, at the end uh, you don't even realize it, but you're no better than Tron. So, <laughs> yeah. We, we definitely want to be better than Tron here in the Bankless Nation, Vitalik. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I hope we're doing a good job of that. Um, that's, one that's more good to hear. Yeah. One more case on uh, for, for speculation, though, is, is, is also this. Um, doesn't it bring users into the space, new people into the space? We're going to have a, a global um, financial or settlement or you know computer system for the world. We need more people. And just about everyone I know uh, that is maybe not a developer came to the space because of some price run up, right? Like just it, you know, it captured headlines. That's how they found out about it. That's how the information was disseminated. That's where they initially came to the space. Now, the people who really understood what it was trying to achieve tended to stay after the bubble popped, but it, it tends to bring people in in these waves. Is that an upside too? That's definitely an upside. And I think uh, the money aspect of crypto is definitely a big kind uh, of part of the reason why it has been so successful at getting users where a lot of the previous efforts at decentralization have failed. And also I think that just uh, the fact that it's risen in price is something that uh, just gives it all, gives crypto a lot of status. Like I think a lot of people uh, kind of underestimate, especially in uh, kind of across across the entire range of cultures that exist in a global context, just uh, kind of the extent to which uh, that fi financial success uh, kind of brings a, a kind of legitimacy that would otherwise uh, not not exist in a space. Um, and so, you know, we've been seeing just crypto as a thing become really successful in a lot of regions around the world. You know, there's a kind of the U.S. and Europe and there's India, there's like China and Korea and other places in Asia. There's, uh, you know, South America and Africa. And in a lot of those places, uh, kind of the kind of the memes that uh, that attract a lot uh, of many us people to uh, uh, to crypto were are definitely not as prevalent by default and so the kind of the legitimization function uh, that comes from the fact that crypto is uh, kind of financially successful has definitely been important in uh, kind of that that more global context as well so yeah there's definitely benefits Though at the same time, there's a lot of risks, right? And the risks basically come because, uh, you know, not every member that joins your community is a net positive contributor, right? And a lot of the time, people that are there for uh, just the money, unless uh, you know, kind of you can manage their presence well, can easily end up being net negative contributors. Uh, and I mean... I feel like in a lot of crypto communities, we end up seeing that, right? In the crypto communities that kind of really strongly emphasize the money aspects, like the, the community just ends up being about speculation and people come in about, you know, hey, the coin's going to go up and the coin's going uh, uh, to go up even more. And this is the reason I'm excited about participating. And those kinds of communities tend to be short term. And they tend to just not create much value for the world and the end it can easily kind of slide down a dark path toward being an even worse sin of MLM sort of thing. Uh, so I uh, think uh, that it is also important for us as a community to just uh, kind of keep uh, kind of talking and keep signaling about how we're not just about that. 
Um, and, you know, like a lot of people do are kind of do sometimes I kind of think of virtue signaling as though it's something kind of dishonest and it's, it's a bad thing, but there's a lot of times where virtue signaling is good, right? There's a lot of time where you really want to just kind of publicly state, you know, these are the virtues that our community is about. And uh, these are the, uh, you know, kind of the kinds of uh, traits that we want to, ha- that we want uh, kind of this uh, cluster of social space to be a magnet for. And these are the things that we want uh, our kind of social cluster to end up repelling. Right. And if you, end up dealing with things that are double-edged swords and you there's often a cases where uh you know you can try to uh kind of build the community in such a way that it kind of attracts the positive end of the sword and it repels the negative end of the sword and of course they're ultimately two ends of the same sword and so they're not going to be further apart uh, from each other than the length of the sword okay crap now i'm mixing sword metaphors and magnet metaphors but, you, know, <laughs> you know what i'm talking about yeah. but uh, like there's a lot that you can do right so i think there's kind of there's definitely these kind of complicated factors that interplay with each other and this kind of complicated task of just this collective effort of uh kind of steering the culture and continuing to make sure that it goes in good directions and that it uh kind of continues to stay true to to its kind of original intentions and I feel like in a lot of those cases, we have been doing fairly well. And I guess we just have to keep on making that effort. Hey guys, we're going to pause the interview real quick to talk about some of our fantastic sponsors. Aave is a borrowing and lending protocol on Ethereum. So what what that means is that you can deposit your assets into Aave and then take out a collateralized loan or simply deposit just to earn an interest rate. So you pay an interest rate for borrowing, you earn an interest rate for supplying, but what the magic of Aave offers you is stable interest rate loans, which is a really important money Lego for building out a bankless revolution. Having an interest rate that doesn't change under your feet is really important for long-term thinking and being able to plan out your own personal finance futures, but also make strong business decisions based on an interest rate that you can depend on. In addition to their stable interest rates, there's also flash loans and flash loans are where you can borrow any amount of any asset for without any collateral, so long as you are also paying it back in the same transaction. The use cases for this are absolutely endless. And I'm really optimistic that some creative developers are going to make some really cool tools using the Aave Money Lego system. We have been watching Aave climb the DeFi Pulse leaderboard, just growing and growing and growing in the assets deposited into their application, which just shows how strong of a system they have created. So you can go and check them out at Aave.com, deposit crypto to start earning or borrowing any Ethereum wallet works. So check it out. I want to tell you about another bankless tool that I personally use. It's fantastic. This one is for our US listeners. It's called Rocket Dollar. So if you have an IRA or a 401k, the problem is it's jailed inside of your brokerage. So your Fidelity account, your Schwab account, that means you don't have good access to crypto. The only crypto that you can buy is in a trust form and it's marked up like 5x, 6x, 8x the price you're getting ripped off. So what you need to do is break your retirement account out of jail, set up something called a self-directed IRA or self-directed 401k. We've written articles about this that we'll include in the show notes. 
Rocket Dollar takes care of all of the pain in getting set up. They help you with the paperwork. You can break your retirement account out of jail and also use the bankless code to get $50 off. So make sure you use that code bankless when you sign up on rocketdollar.com to get $50 off. All right, let's dive back into the interview. So Vitalik, in 2017, maybe it was very early 2018, you wrote a, a pretty famous tweet about how the valuations of these cryptocurrencies, crypto networks, crypto applications were just far beyond the value that they were actually providing to the world. And you posed the question of that, you know, the, the cryptocurrency, blockchain, Ethereum, Bitcoin world hadn't actually provided all that, hasn't really achieved all that much. And the valuations that are currently going on in the crypto world uh, we're not reflective of the value that that they deserve. Now that we're three plus years later, three and a half years later from from that mania, have we gotten to the point where you would have hoped that um, we might actually deserve some sort of uh, you know? Pat- I'm not gonna I'm not gonna ask you to um, make some sort of prescriptive statement as to what the values of these networks should be, but uh, the value that you see Ethereum providing to the world. Is that kind of what you were hoping uh, we would have been able to um, achieve back in, in 2017? It's two and a half years, uh, not not three and a half years yet, by the way. Uh, but uh, no, pardon me. I think so. I and mean, I think like the price of uh, Bitcoin is down by a factor of two, and the price of ETH is uh, down by about a factor of five. But I think uh, you know the resilience of. Uh, the Ethereum network and the amount of progress that the Ethereum ecosystem has made is easily up by a factor of five uh, since uh, two and a half years ago. Uh, and as I mentioned, you know, at the beginning of uh, our conversation, uh, you can see this by looking at the technology. You can uh, you can see this by looking at the research. We can see this by looking at what's actually been deployed. You can see this by looking at just what kinds of things are being built on it, top of Ethereum as we speak. And uh, the amount of progress is huge, uh, and also I feel like just the presence of Ethereum and crypto in general as being just kind of a thing that cemented itself as a durable part of a kind of the collective cultural conscience, I guess, a kind of even just of the broader world, is something that's uh, come much further lately. Uh, and like I regularly talk to a kind of fairly mainstream economists, uh, kind of increasingly mainstream political thinkers, uh, kind of tech business people and um, all of these groups. And, you know, they see crypto as being a uh, kind of significant and uh, durable piece of the puzzle. So I think uh, from a lot of angles, it's uh, just made a lot of progress and it's much less of this uh, kind of pie in the sky speculative thing that it was even two and a half years ago. Okay, Vitalik. So that, that was uh, present. We talked about past and present. We want to flip forward to future. So Ethereum future, um, we began the conversation. You talked about, uh, some optimism you had a lot of the worries that you'd previously had, uh, were not present anymore. We were making progress in many areas, but you probably still have some worries about where this whole thing could go wrong. What worries you the most? What big problems do you still see in front of us, uh, it, like preventing us from being the system that uh, we all want it to be? I would say the bigger problems at this point are less technological and more cultural. Um, so, like, one of the things that's uh, worried me around the past one and a half years, right? So, if we look at this kind of 
rise of ETH maximalism that we've seen, right? Like on the one hand, I totally understand, uh, you know, why that trend uh, kind of became uh, became a thing and started to uh, exist. Um, you know, before that, there was definitely this uh, kind of culture of just not being able to talk about things like the value of ETH as a as an asset or uh, in a even just being optim um, optimistic about Ethereum specifically as a thing. And uh, there were a lot of projects that were kind of walking all over us in some sense and just kind of pretending to be the Ethereum community's friends and then uh, kind of talking at, at, at our conferences and uh, then going uh, kind of behind the Ethereum community's backs and talking to VCs about how terrible Ethereum is and how they're going to be better. Uh, and there's uh, this kind of reaction to that um, that happened. But... At the same time, there's definitely a lot of downsides um, and there's a lot of risks. Uh, so, like, in a lot of ways, right, many aspects of uh, Ethereum culture and kind of the influences that I've tried to make to Ethereum culture are kind of a reaction to what I perceive as being failures in Bitcoin land. Um, so I feel like we've always been trying to be multi-chain friendly just because of how multi-chain hostile kind of the Bitcoin maximalist mentality has been ever since 2014. Um, we have the multi-client roadmap because uh, as a reaction to uh, the negative consequences of the dominance of Bitcoin Core, um, we have, uh, you know, miners voting on the gas limit as a reaction to uh, the flaws of having a totally fixed block size and you know, proof of stake as a reaction to the flaws of proof of work um, and all of these different things. But, um, and Ethereum, we're kind of that culture and that aspect of it is definitely kind of becoming more like some of those things. Um, and there's benefits to some of those things. Like there's benefits uh, that come from even just uh, being honest about the idea that, you know, ETH the asset is... Um, is a great asset um, to, to have, and it's uh, one that can, whose uh, value can kind of sustain itself uh, going into the future. Um, but uh, at the same time, you know, there's risks that come out of uh, just being unfriendly to independent blockchain ecosystems uh, and just saying that, you know, if it's not on Ethereum, it's worthless. Uh, there's risks uh, that come out of uh, just having a culture that has even the slightest risk of being perceived as the outside as not being about improving the world, but being about making itself richer. Um, you know, there was that comic that uh, uh, is kind of fame, uh, fairly famous and kind of prop kind of propagated around uh, kind of some parts of uh, Bitcoin land where, you know, kind of you, uh, like, the guy's holding a balloon and uh, the other guy's saying, you know, oh, this is just a bubble. And then the balloon turns into a big hot air balloon. Um, and uh, the other person says, oh, it's just a bubble. And then uh, the guy ends up standing inside of this kind of protective dome. And on the outside, uh, you know, how you have total civilization devastation. And the guy on the outside is still saying, oh, you know, it's just a bubble. Um, and like... There's a seductive appeal to that mentality, um, but of course, you know, that mentality, there's also a very deep kind of darkness to that mentality because it's basically saying we're not about improving the world. We're about uh, being part of the process of uh, the world collapsing. And only if uh, you basically buy our coin, uh, will you be able to uh, pretty much have salvation and be uh, kind of on the right side of the new apartheid instead of being on the wrong side. 
and I would rather be part of a community that's about making sure the world doesn't blow up in the first place. Um, and so, like, I definitely worry about uh, kind of losing um, those aspects of um, kind of ourselves and who we are as a byproduct of uh, kind of some of those trends. But I, mean, I feel like the Ethereum community does have uh, kind of a lot of uh, people that are willing to provide a lot of pushback against uh, some of the more negative aspects of uh, kind of those mentalities. So I think, uh, you know, there's definitely things to be optimistic about. Like, I, I feel like uh, there's definitely like just a lot of people that do understand why it's important to not overdo some of those things. And, and so... Uh, I feel like uh, there's a very, very strong chance that we'll be we'll be able to kind of successfully avoid most of those traps. Um, so that's one cultural thing. Another cultural thing that worries me is um, so from a kind of just global, you know, mega political uh, to use uh, kind of that word from the sovereign individual uh, kind of narrative around you know what uh, kind of cryptocurrencies are and a kind of the way that that narrative interacts with uh, kind of what the blockchain as is and what people use it for, right? So this is actually a place where I think Bitcoin does it well, right? So Bitcoin, kind of the ideology is basically that, uh, oh, you know, the central banks are just totally being incredibly irresponsible with all this money printing and the US is going to collapse and the EU is going to collapse and a bunch of places are going to collapse and things will be terrible. Um, and the thing that you're supposed to do is huddle and if you huddle, you're being part of uh, kind of the money of the future um, and you will benefit, right? And so kind of this broader ideology and this kind of set of facts that those people believe about the world and the people believe about what the world is going to be actually meshes together with the messaging about what you're actually con concretely supposed to do with the, with the blockchain and why that's good for you, right? Which is basically hodling because if you hodl, you're going to hodl the coin that's going up instead of hodling the coin that's going to zero. Um, and in Ethereum's case, there's less of this uh, kind of nice meshing, right? Like there's you know, definitely a lot more diversity of political views, like definitely a lot less of this common belief that, you know, the world is going to go to hell um, in that same financial way. Like there's definitely some people who believe that and then there's other people that don't believe that. Um, there's a lot of uh, kind of diversity of political perspectives. Uh, there's a lot of diversity of uh, kind of economic perspectives, about perspectives about, around like what uh, decentralized social media should look like, uh, for example. And the things that people do with the Ethereum blockchain today, in a lot of the time, feel kind of a little bit disjoint from that, right? So even taking yield farming, for example, right? Like there's no real way in which like your ability to get um you know 135 percent interest from yield farming today a uh, kind of meshes together nicely with a belief that people in the ethereum community have about you know what the future of uh, like economics and geopolitics and finance is going to look like um like it feels like those two spheres are kind of less uh, kind of merged together with each other I and mean, i think 
there are cases where this is not true. So like I think quadratic funding is one of those examples, right? Like Ethereum people are in many cases passionate about creating new and better social systems that solve the problems of the 21st century. And quadratic funding is one of the things that potentially stands to be an actually credible solution to and of the question of how to allocate money for public goods funding. And quadratic funding is something that people actually participate in in this case, specifically as a way of like, helping to make the Ethereum community better today because people care about the Ethereum community today, right? And so that's one example where a kind of your belief about the world and uh, your like the thing that you do today as a member of the Ethereum ecosystem actually do uh, kind of like work together really nicely. But like in the case of decentralized finance, for example, I mean, stable coins may be a good example. Like, uh, maybe, I mean, even just international cryptocurrency payments, potentially a good example. And like, there are some, there are some uh, kind of good examples of this, but there's also a lot of kind of some cases where there is this kind of disjointness. And like, a lot of this disjointness is, is uh, kind of hard for me to uh, kind of understand kind of really fully kind of entirely kind of explain what exactly makes me uncomfortable about it it's more of this kind of instinctive thing but it is something that i think we as a community could uh, i guess uh, do better at um so yeah i guess uh, kind of so one just uh, concerns about ethereum maximalism just kind of turning into something that makes ethereum a less inclusive and welcoming community is one risk and then the other risk of being this uh, disconnect between macro narratives and uh, kind of the the what people are supposed to do with the with the Ethereum blockchain today. Um, those are kind of two of the cultural issues that concern me. And then there's there's a bunch of other other ones, but they're kind of much smaller. And and on the technological side, I would say the thing that concerns me the most is basically that, uh, you know, we are going to have a big bubble of adoption and interest and that this bubble will come before Ethereum scaling technology is ready for it. Uh, so I guess I hope that the people uh, developing uh, Ethereum uh, scaling technology will continue, um, you know, adding oil and uh, keep continuing to just build it out uh, and uh, and shipping it and uh, rolling it in, out into the hands of people who need it. So I'm fairly optimistic, but we'll see. On that last one, Vitalik, we're, we're close though, right? With rollups? I mean, we're close to being able to offload some of the mainnet traffic, aren't we? Uh, yeah. So I think uh, ZK rollups, uh, there's uh, Loopring and ZK Sync that exist already. Optimistic rollups seem like they're about half a year away. So we're definitely close. I think the main concern at, at this point is less the tech side and more the adoption side. Like, how do we actually get the people that are using Ethereum today using rollups instead of using the main chain, right? How do we get the people that are sending all of those ERC-20s around, sending them inside of Loopring or sending them inside of ZKSync instead of uh, continuing to just send them on the Ethereum network and paying high transaction fees for them? And that's a question that'll be resolved by, I think, talking to wallets, kind of talking to applications and getting a whole bunch of these different ecosystem players together and getting a kind of common roadmap, which is definitely a coordination challenge, but it is one that we'll have to figure out.
Vitalik, you talked a lot about um, how the Ethereum community is a little bit more nebulous than than the Bitcoin community, and how you know the, the the Bitcoin community has this rallying cry about exactly how you participate, which is you buy BTC and you hodl, and then you create the superior money system. Whereas Ethereum doesn't really have something such a strong totem to to rally around. And uh, I'm always reminded by a, a, a metaphor that Amin Soleimani put out forever ago, which was uh, the 300 Spartans versus the Athenians, where the Athenians are kind of this hodgepodge group of, of people. Like one's a carpenter, one's a blacksmith, one's a farmer. And then when you put them all together, you have this kind of hodgepodge army, which compared to the to the 300, are, the 300 is this very strong like phalanx of, of just people that is a hard not, nut to crack. However... And we, we see, and, and me and Ryan always like to talk about how like the code or values of a blockchain actually impacts the community that runs around it, right? And so Bitcoin is not expressive. And as a result of that, it's pushed complexity out to, to the fringes, right? And I was listening to a podcast uh, with uh, Presswitch and Hazu and um, from Uncommon Core last night where they talked about the absolute lack of complexity at the base layer has pushed so much complexity into Lightning Network that it's actually been relatively restricted in itself because of how much complexity is there. Whereas Ethereum has this expressiveness at the base layer, which seems to be reflected in an expressive community of a number of different people. And so while Ethereum is more expressive, I'm optimistic that that, that code, that values baked into the Ethereum uh, system, the Ethereum blockchain, does actually allow for a more scalable social community, a social a community around the Ethereum blockchain, simply because the expressiveness is, is baked into the, the L1. Um, am, am I onto something here or, or do you see a problem with this? I think that's definitely true. I and mean, I think like, I mean, kind of the moral of the story in 300, of course, was that uh, the hyper dedicated and focused uh, kind of militaristic Spartans end up being more valuable in uh, saving Greece than uh, in, uh, kind of the, the motley Athenian crew. And, you know, in real life, the Spartans end up eventually winning the Peloponnesian War and, uh, uh, and um, all of those things. Um, so I think, but like the real life is uh, not exactly like that. Like, I think the challenge in real in uh, real life is basically that, you know, in real life, there's more than two teams, right? Like our model of war tends to be that there's two teams. Uh, and so your objective in war is to kind of create maximum cohesion and strength within your team and so that it can beat the other team. But in real life, there's much more than two teams, right? And uh, when you have more than two teams, uh, then... The winning strategy uh, is base uh, is basically to gang up with um, the majority of the other teams and uh, kind of win against uh, the re the rest of the teams that are not part of part of your alliance, right? And and so if you have more than two teams, then a skill that becomes as important as raw military power is your ability to convince other people and appear sympathetic and appear as the sort of team that other people would want to be allies with, right? And I feel like that's uh, one of the Ethereum community's big strengths, right? You know, the fact that we have all of these large corporations uh, building on Ethereum, that we have uh, kind of a lot of friends and allies in academic communities, uh, that we have uh, a lot of just different people all around the world that are interested in uh, building Ethereum-related things. So 
I think that's an advantage in a lot of ways. Um, and I definitely think that the Ethereum community is a kind of model of like what crypto is all about is less one of uh, kind of we're going to war and more about uh, kind of this is a complex world with you know lots of bad forces and lots of good forces and it's a pretty uh, kind of complicated challenge but let's uh, kind of make friends and uh, see if we can fi uh, figure out a way to succeed in a, um, in a way that maximally tries to make everyone happy and if you're optimizing for that kind of world then uh, you know you do want your uh, your blacksmiths and uh, yeah, and your poets and um and all of these other characters uh, so yeah and yay athens i guess mm. <laughs> <laughs> so so one common theme on on the bankless pod and, and what me and ryan are always trying to define is what is ethereum like or bitcoin too um like it, it's not just a blockchain right it's not just a database it's not just a protocol for updating that database it's also a community it's it, so like what how do we define these things on like the grand scale when you take all of the interconnected uh, components and you look at them holistically what is it is it a religion is it a nation a technology like when you com compose everything together what do we actually have no, this is an interesting question because uh, the answer ends up being different uh, depending on uh, kind of how you think about it. Um, you know, is it like, do we focus on either the asset? Do we focus on the Ethereum blockchain? Uh, do we focus on just blockchains using the Ethereum technology? Um, you know, is Ethereum Classic a province of the Ethereum nation um, or... Is it just uh, something completely split off and different? Um, is um, is enterprise Ethereum part of Ethereum? Uh, is um, are some of these other kind of newer blockchains that are basically forks of Ethe of uh, Ethereum, but then go off and do a bunch of their own things? Uh, kind of part of uh, this uh, great great Ethereum bubble, or at what point uh, do they kind of go sufficiently far that they that they're outside of it? It depends. I mean, I think it's. Uh, you know, the real world, I think, uh, is one where there's a lot of these uh, kind of complicated Venn diagrams where, depending on what you care about, uh, you end up kind of including and excluding different things. Like, I don't know if you've seen this, but there's this uh, kind of fairly famous uh, kind of diagram that attempts to describe what Britain is. And, you know, you have a circle around England, you have a circle around Britain, you have a circle around the British Isles, and then you have a circle around the, a couple of other terms where to someone who's kind of pretty far away from kind of all of that, uh, you know, hey, England, Britain, aren't those kind of synonyms of each other? And, you know, no, it's actually this kind of really complicated thing. And there's a bunch of people that kind of different ideas about what gets included and what gets excluded. And are you focusing on political things or are you focusing on uh, kind of geographic other things? Um, so I don't think there is one clear answer. I think the answer does ultimately depend on kind of what you would care about. So Vitalik, you mentioned uh, ETH, the asset, and that being sort of a, a stakeholder group, and it certainly is. Our take has been that ETH, the asset, has been underappreciated in the past. And by past, I probably mean recent past, you know, the last two years, let's call it. Um, underappreciated as a source of collateral for all of the DeFi that's built on top of it, underappreciated uh, as a as security, essentially, for the entire network. 
And we put out this idea, like the triple point asset uh, thesis idea, which is that ETH is kind of three super asset super classes at once. It acts as sort of a commodity when you buy ETH transactions with it and use it to pay for gas, that sort of thing. Uh, it In staking, it will act as a capital asset in that it returns you some ETH, almost like a bond or like a T-bill uh, in exchange for de- depositing it and bonding it. And it also acts as a store of value in some ways. So a collateral for the entirety of the, the DeFi space. Do you buy into that? And uh, what's your take on what ETH actually is? No, that definitely makes sense. And thanks for explaining. And when I uh, saw the term like triple point asset, I, I think it was yesterday on Twitter. At first, I, th- I thought it had something to do with, uh, you know, those uh, that particular kind of temperature and pressure where ETH is somehow a solid, a liquid and a gas at the same time. No, that's exactly which, right. Well, OK, that's exactly right. Oh. Okay. Oh, I see. It. That's that. That is the exact metaphor. Oh, I, okay. Now I okay. Now I actually get it. Yeah, yeah. It is gas and store value and medium of um, exchange. Okay. No, that's, that's and all of those things at once, right? Because ETH is very you know composable. It could be all of those things. No. That, okay. That, that that's really cool. Then um, I definitely agree with that, I, and I think uh, there's definitely multiple ways of thinking about uh, ether uh, and. The nice thing is that I think these functions, they don't interfere with each other and they even kind of complement each other, right? So like, especially, you know, once uh, EIP-1559 comes out and you get some ETH being burned, then uh, the more ETH uh, get, that gets uh, u- used to pay for transaction fees, the better a store of value Ether becomes. And if ETH gets uh, used as a store of value, then that also kind of, you know, might push up its price and... Um, ends up leading to a more secure network. Um, and then if people, more people send transactions, some of that also ends up going to the stakers. So there's definitely a lot of uh, kind of virtuous cycles and kind of positive feedback loops between uh, those uh, three use cases. Uh, so, you know, it's definitely a good way of thinking about it. You know, our other take is that the value of ETH is super important. Uh, for the security of the network. But but also, if you want, uh, you, you were talking earlier about some of your favorite DeFi use cases. You mentioned stablecoins, that your favorites were among the like more um, crypto economic stablecoins. Uh, and for those types of stablecoins, having a protocol uh, relatively like risk-free source of value, source of collateral, uh, tends to be pretty important. Um, like, What's your take? I mean, how important is the value of ETH to the success of Ethereum? No, the stablecoin case is definitely a good example because ultimately, you know, the total amount of value that can be stored in ETH-backed cryptoeconomic stablecoins is bounded above by the value of all the ETH, right? And so if there's no value in ETH, then it becomes much harder to have a lot of value in uh, in crypto-economic stablecoins. So that's definitely... We have another metaphor for that, by the way, Vitalik, which is uh, economic bandwidth. You know, ETH acts as mm-hmm. sort of a, mm-hmm. a sort of a value bandwidth at the base layer for these other assets that can be built on top of it. Right. Okay. So, what's uh, so what's the metaphor for ETH being a plasma, and what's the metaphor for ETH being a Bose-Einstein condensate? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you can help us with that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We'll, we'll say that for the future. You know, that's that's uh, 2025 type of, uh, you know, memeing, I think. We're, we're still in 2020. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's fair. No, 2020, you know, the hindsight year, it's a good year. Let's finish it. Yeah. Um, 
Vitalik, one other question on ETH, the asset, and that's um, ETH's monetary policy. So that's been a criticism historically uh, of Ethereum that it, it doesn't have a uh, fully defined monetary policy. We've talked about minimum necessary issuance as being sort of the social contract of Ethereum, yet uh the truth is, it's not something, minimum necessary issuance isn't something that can be really hard-coded into Ethereum. So it's decided by kind of the social contract, you know, should we readjust gas downward, for instance, that's kind of, or should we um, decrease issuance, uh, that, that's kind of decided by the social contract. Is that sustainable? Or do you think we need to kind of codify ETH's monetary policy as part of ETH2, and what would that even look like? Well, the trouble is that you can't like permanently codify monetary policy, right? Because ultimately, it is just backed by the social contract. And if the social contract changes in Ethereum or in Bitcoin, then uh, the total supply ends up being different from what people expected it to be. Now, of course, you can have social contracts that value immutability more, more than others. And you can even have a social contract that values uh, kind of greater and greater ossification over time which seems like uh, roughly the social contract that Ethereum has already. Uh, so I don't think there's much kind of too special that we need to worry about in that regard. I mean, it, it definitely is something that I think we should avoid ossifying kind of at the beginning because proof of stake and, and Ethereum's variety especially is still an untested experiment and we have no idea how sustainable it'll be, but kind of over time moving toward freezing values in place and moving toward adding stronger guarantees i think is definitely something that's reasonable to think about but you do think that the uh issuance rate of ether should be something that is uh calcified in ethereum in the future at some point is that is that right uh i mean i don't think i'm a proponent of calcifying the issuance rate in the sense of guaranteeing a hard number like you know a hard cap or even a hard like 0.1% a year or something like that. I mean, in proof of, in the proof of stake design that we have, right? I mean, there is already a planned uh, kind of upper bound of 2% a year. Um, and if we want, we could, could obviously try to reduce that upper bound. But and even that upper bound is still kind of ultimately changeable by uh, changes to the protocol. Uh, so, and that's something that we're just going to be kind of more and more comfortable with over time. Um, the reason why I'm not comfortable with a hard cap is basically because like, I do believe that we should take this trade off of like, if we have to make a choice between certainty of issuance and certainty of, of the level of uh, Ethereum platform security, then we should choose a certainty of uh, the level of Ethereum platform security. Do you also agree, Vitalik, that um, since the, the platform security is backed by the asset itself, there can be kind of a value if you have a neutral monetary policy that that um, groups of people you know value more um, that therefore increases the price of of the asset increases your security is there kind of a balance there I mean Bitcoin has achieved uh, s some pretty tremendous security based on the mean value of, of Bitcoin let's call it of this fixed cap Um you know, can, can we benefit from that in Ethereum? I mean, that's true, though I, I feel like there is other ways to benefit from that meme value. Like even, for example, if you look at just the amount of transaction fees now and like if those transaction fees end up like even 80% getting burns, then that's already higher than graded proof of, expected proof of stake issuance. 
So I think if we're just a little bit patient and we start seeing, you know, four or five years from now, there being like entire long periods of time where ether issuance goes negative, then that's something that could turn out to be an insanely powerful meme by itself. Like even if it's not technically guaranteed and even if, you know, usage stops, it goes back to being positive for some time. And just even that's something that could end up attracting a lot of people. So... I don't think we should even be kind of trying to freeze things now. I think we should be willing to be you know, a bit more patient and just seeing what proof of stake ends up looking like uh, economically speaking. And as we enter proof of stake, as it's defined now in the protocol, how would you sort of describe issuance? So you mentioned sort of a, a 2% upper limit. Uh, do you have some other details of how you might describe what issuance policy will be in proof of stake? Yeah, and it's basically uh, kind of an increasing function and how many people validate. So if a very a little ETH is validating, it could be as little as like 100, 200,000 ETH a year. And then if literally everyone validates, it ends up going up to 2 million ETH a year. And then you subtract from that uh, transaction fee burn. So that's basically what it is, right? And I mean, that does feel kind of very abstract and weird and like, you know, I'm just like somebody who wants to figure out whether how uh, whether or not to hodl a cryptocurrency. Why are you throwing weird uh, math formulas and in, involving square roots at me? But I think <laughs> that people kind of overrate uh, the cost of that, and the reason uh, kind of the, the mental cost of that, and the reason why people overrate the mental cost of that is because it's a formula today. But when ETH two is running, and when people see what. Uh, the formulas actually lead to and kind of what results they create in practice. I think uh, people will and um, kind of just see, okay, yeah, fine. These are the numbers that it looks like it is in practice, and those are numbers that I'm uh, fairly comfortable with, and so I'll participate. Like I think uh, the like average people, and especially people that are <clears throat> not so much super analytical. I think uh, like. Us analytical people underestimate the extent to which kind of those like less analytical people are willing to just like kind of intuitively reason by looking at past experience and and the extent to which that actually works pr uh, pretty well for most people. Yeah. Uh, any guesses on how much time uh, Satoshi thought about the 21 million hard cap? Like how much time he put into that? I Like my guess is probably very little. It was kind of a guess, right? Yeah, that's my guess too. And that issuance rate that you were talking about, that's going to be hard-coded in Ethereum the same way the 21 million is. Uh, of course, mm -hmm. maintained by social contract, but also hard-coded, right? Yeah. Very good. All right, Vitalik, we're going to finish this up with a quick uh, lightning round, sir. So just a uh, you know, sentence or two answer on these, if you can. Uh, if, if not, then uh, <laughs> we, can, we can discuss it some more. Um, the first question yeah. I have in the lightning round is, are gas fees... So gas fees are too high, and that leads to inequality. Do you think that statement is fair or overblown? By the way, it's not a lightning round. It's a roll-up round. Um, but, <laughs> um, well, I, nice. think, no, I definitely think that gas fees being, being high is bad for Ethereum's uh, goal to be an egalitarian system. And that's a big part of the reason why I'm so focused on scalability. Ether flipping Bitcoin. Is that going to happen? We'll see. No comment. Fair enough. What's the low-hanging fruit that you'd like to see built on Ethereum Vitalik? Um, I mean, I keep yelling about smart contract wallets, so can I keep saying smart contract wallets? Absolutely. Why, why smart contract wallets? Oh, just because, like, 
wallet security is i think just a boring but continually underrated problem and we need to have like just solutions to that that have good user experience um, another thing I'd probably also say is that I, in addition to having like stable coins for the dollar, I think it would be nice to have synthetic assets that represent other kinds of assets. So like other major fiat currencies and major stock indices would be the thing that I would go for. I, I get to take this one, David. What's your favorite ETH killer, Vitalik? Um, I mean, I like some of the uh, some of the work that these um, optimistic roll-up teams uh, like, uh, you know, Fuel and, uh, and Optimism and Arbitrum are doing. Yeah, I'm curious how you stay so unflappable in the face of all of the the Twitter trolling. Do you have like a like a secret for that? How, how can we emulate you? I guess eventually you just kind of get used to it, and I don't know. You just kind of take life less ser- less seriously, and it's uh, and, and I guess it comes naturally. So in Ethereum, we tend to rotate what our focus is from time to time. Uh, right now, it seems to be there's this uh, boom of L2 networks coming online. There's also the the D5 movement. Uh, perhaps there's also prediction markets on the horizon. What, what do you think the Ethereum uh, world is going to focus on next? Hmm. You know, I think continued work on DeFi. Um, I think there is going to be a lot of focus around like actually finalizing and uh, rolling out the scaling solutions and that'll end up occupying a lot of people's attention um, hopefully more privacy solutions too um, i mean prediction markets i uh, hope that we'll see more interest in actually using those and i know omen is out and uh, augur version 2 is coming out soon next one is is crypto on a collision course with nation states mm. that's an interesting one I and mean, crypto is definitely a, in a very interesting position kind of with respect to the current kind of geopolitical and infopolitical landscape, right? Because kind of the geopolitical landscape seems to be one where at least centralized systems are finding it harder and harder to escape the reality of uh, them being being inside the nation states that they happen to be based inside of um, and people trying to uh, kind of create more and more of these kind of nation state level barriers um so you know obviously the kind of the chinese firewall has been around for a long time and yesterday uh uh, pompeo made a bit of a bluster about uh, kind of wanting to ban tiktok um in europe uh, there's been a lot of this kind of unfriendliness toward u.s tech uh, tech companies for some time um, and then, of course, some people obviously say, oh, no, that's just antitrust and data protection. And then the cynics uh, kind of say that, well, actually, kind of a lot of these uh, kind of moves seem very targeted toward like basically kicking U.S. companies out. Uh, so there is this kind of balkanization of the centralized Internet. Uh, and then the other one a lot is, of course, um, India banning all of those uh, Chinese applications. Um, and this uh, desire of uh, kind of building these uh, kind of tech uh, kind of techno centralized uh, civilization states um, essentially and crypto is uh, kind of standing strong as one of the few remaining things that's genuinely really international and that's a, a kind of position that we should be very kind of happy that we've managed to kind of maintain and stay inside um and 
I mean, I do think that uh, kind of the, the cryptocurrency part of crypto is a big part of why it managed to do this and why it actually managed to kind of get some of this global appeal, right? Like, uh, you know, the ideology is the ideology, but, uh, you know, number go up is a kind of... Uh, one of the closest things that we that humanity actually has to uh, universal values uh, and of like it or not um and that's something that puts it into a position where it has uh, the ability to kind of continue to exist as a, a bridging layer between uh, kind of uh, all of these different ecosystems but at the same time you know that means that crypto can do things that uh, kind of other actors uh, increasingly can't do and that also kind of puts a target on the back of its head and Will crypto be able to kind of weather the storm in terms of having that target on the back of its head? I don't know. We'll see. And this is uh, definitely one of the big challenges that we're going to have to navigate. In what ways is crypto going to be bad for the world? Hmm. Uh, I mean, the speculation bubbles have definitely had uh, kind of negative consequences. I mean, in in a lot of cases. Um, some of the kind of Ponzi's and especially the ones uh, targeting third world countries um, have uh, had uh, negative consequences. And I think we've def- we as a community have definitely not come close to exhausting our options for trying to deal with and mitigate some of, some of that damage. And there's a lot uh, considerably more that we could be doing. Um, and even like fully in the context of uh, crypto being a and Ethereum being a fully permissionless and decentralized system where we can't just like kick off applications we don't like. Like even um, out given that constraint, there's still a lot that, a lot more that we could do. Um, uh, I mean, ransomware also a negative consequence. Uh, so in general, right? Like there's it is definitely kind of one of the just the facts of sense of uh, censorship resistance uh, that you're also going to end up uh, taking on applications uh, that base kind of people uh, would have wanted to uh, wanted to censor for for reasons that you sometimes like and that's uh, kind of one of the costs that you have to end up paying i mean i do think that uh, kind of some of the reputation that uh, kind of crypto gets um um, as a result of those things does end up being undeserved like basically the kind of effect is right that uh, a lot of those kind of undesirable use cases ultimately like they're going to exist anyway and they're going to, but of course they're going to move onto the platform that's uh, kind of most convenient for them and so the marginal benefit of that crypto provides to these applications is much less than a kind of the volume of activity uh, of activity that's uh, hap- of those applications that's happening inside of crypto right because if crypto did not exist then those applications would probably still exist it would just exist on other platforms and yes often those platforms would be less efficient for those use cases but kind of that delta of and if the increase of efficiency that crypto provides is much less than just the total volume of uh, those applications that ends up happening on crypto. So I do think that, and the extent uh, to which uh, crypto's and uh, responsible for those things happening um, ends up being uh, kind of overstated in a lot of cases. But 
there are real issues and there are real things that we could be doing more to mitigate in that regard. And there's a lot of things that Ethereum uh, and the Ethereum community have been doing to mitigate, right? Especially if you just look at the Ethereum community versus some of the more unscrupulous uh, crypto communities uh, in the space. Like, there's definitely a night and day difference, but there's still much more that we could do. Do you believe immortality is possible? Uh, yes, I do. Um, well, it depends what it, you mean. Is by... it going to be good? Uh, oh, that absolutely. Um, like the way that I think about it is like, imagine if, you know, we were elves and we were actually immortal and then someone came along with the bright idea of like, Hey, how about we, inst- um, unleash a virus into the world that makes everyone die after a hundred years. And we're going to do this because, um, you know, old people deserve to die because they have bad opinions or, you know, whatever uh, uh, other uh, one of these really horrible reasons uh, is that people comes up with. Like, people will just reject, completely reject that. And if, if someone tries to do that by force, they'll be like basically just hanged for genocide pretty much immediately. Right. So if you flip that around, like, yes, of course, I think kind of humans being uh, immortal is a vast improvement over the uh, over the status quo. Um and I actually think that uh, we are going to see a bit of a kind of sea change in favor of those things. Like, what are the things I've noticed um, as a result of COVID-19 is that people are realizing that, you know, bad things don't just happen because of technology. Bad things can happen because of lack of technology. Like, if we had a vaccine for the virus, then we would have much fewer problems. Like, if we had better ways of just understanding what the heck is going on in terms of the virus and who it's infect who it's infecting and how um, and if we had better statistics then there would be much fewer problems but on the other hand if we had a kind of back to the land caveman society well guess what we would still have the virus and it would kill considerably more people uh, so there is definitely this kind of pro-technology trends that i'm seeing coming out of this and i think pro using technology to get rid of biological mortality entirely is going to be a, one of the positive uh, kind of results of uh, of that trend. But of course, biological mortality can only get to about a few uh, kind of trillion or quadrillion years before the entropy of the universe starts running out. And then there's a the question of like, can we uh, kind of create new universes and uh, keep on putting ourselves into new universes to survive even beyond then? And I don't know. I mean, I hope we can. I mean, infinity is definitely better than a quadrillion years, but we'll see. Vitalik, uh, one last question for our roll-up round, and it's been uh, an absolute pleasure to have you, sir. And we'll, we'll close it out with this question. How are you going to be celebrating Ethereum's fifth birthday on July 30th? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe maybe running a 2.0 staking node. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that, that's it. Maybe uh, birthday cake and candles involved, or just the steak. Yeah, no, no, no. We'll have to could see. Do a, could do a birthday cake too. Um, I don't know. Five is a milestone. Um, Vitalik, it's been a pleasure to have you on Bankless. Thanks for taking the time to answer our questions and speak with the Bankless Nation. We certainly appreciated it, and we are looking forward to new developments on Ethereum. Thank you. This has been great. All right, everyone, actions from that conversation. Uh, We've included in the show notes a timeline to some of the key Ethereum achievements. So take a look at that, reflect back on where we've come in the last five years. We've also included a link to some of the 
previous Ethereum-focused episodes on Bankless. So make sure you catch up on some of those past Ethereum episodes as we start to celebrate Ethereum's fifth birthday. The third thing you could do is give us five stars. David, why do we need those stars? We need those five stars because we are trying to grow the Bankless Nation. Uh, And the way that we do that is we get the Bankless Gospel into as many ears as possible. Climbing up the crypto podcast charts is difficult because of how many people downloaded podcasts in 2017, and we're still fighting against that tide today. So we're going to get there eventually, but it would be awesome if we had your help in getting those five stars and those good reviews so that we can climb the ranks when you type in Bitcoin, when you type in Ethereum, when you type in crypto into the Apple or Spotify uh, podcast charts, into the Apple or Spotify podcast search, that Bankless shows up first. All right, let's do it. So risks and disclaimers as well. We talked about some of those in the episode with Vitalik, but just a reminder, ETH is risky. All of crypto is risky. So is DeFi. You could lose what you put in, but we are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we are glad you are with us on the Bankless journey.